Hello, this is Ryan with All Thread Voice, and I'm joined with Ted Parrish for episode two. Uh, last week, we talked about how we responded to the COVID-19 pandemic and our response. Um, we also described the beginning of the podcast as well, um, kind of in reflection of the the podcast. It's, it's a lot harder than I thought. Uh, lots of ums, ahs, and thanks. And likes, um, it's not easy talking on recording and making it sound good. So I think it was a big learning uh, moment for me. And I just noticed like, I had another um in, as I was talking. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, another um. There we go. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a lot more work than I had. Um, there's another um. And I don't know how you cut the ums out. That's going to, you know, that's, that's going to be tough. And... Uh, I was thinking also about, I mentioned last week when I said, you know, about people buying TVs and things like that. And more I was talking about season. You know, I think people go through a season life when you have time for replace furniture or buy a car or whatever. You have a little more money and you have times where you're, you tighten a belt and you don't have as much money. And so I notice when you kind of talk about on a on a blog, you can't always go in depth as you want. And at that time, I was talking about how I feel our business with the printed towels, or we have a lot of customers that are do embroidery and they sell them. This market we're in and our customers are in seems to ride the downturn in the economy as well because when people have less disposable income, they seem to spend money on the items that we make. And then when people have more disposable income, then they have money for the type of items that we make for our customers. So that's the other thing that I noticed was that when you talk about something, you have to kind of be careful because you don't have the time to go in the depth with it. Yeah, another thing too is we're going at it um, just cold. So I think you know the thing, the part of the learning process is is you know preparation. And you always see, see that quote is like you know you you if you don't prepare you 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 if you don't plan and you prepare to fail. And, you know, so it's having that preparation and going in cold is probably not the best solution. Um, I know there's a lot of podcasts where the the host will just go in cold and just open it up. Um, but the thing I just learned is that it takes a lot of practice and experience to just go into a podcast or recording cold and be able to say exactly what you want without the stuttering. And there's also nerve, like a little bit of nervous too, because even though, you know, we can't see everybody that's subscribing to the podcast, but you know, people are listening and this recording is going out to them. So, uh, I think that that's the, that's the biggest thing. And also trying to public speak in this. Like the part of it is like once you notice that you're saying the ums and the uhs and the likes and the filler filler words, then you begin to start noticing it in other people like yourself, and it's a it's a just basically a development process that everyone has to go through. And like the other thing I noticed both with the last episode was, you know, slowing down just a little bit and make sure you pronounce the words. I think it's more of a Midwest thing that we talk really fast and very clipped, so slowing down, being able to pronounce your words and so that people can hear them. That's the biggest thing is trying to not like get out of that regional voice. Yeah, yeah, totally. That makes sense. Yeah. So uh, what we wanted to talk about today was the beginning of the company as ACS Home and Work. Uh, we talked a little bit about it in the last episode. Um, we talked about the kind of disasters that the company went through. 
uh, between 2008, the recession, 9-11, and then now the virus. And we've had other you know, interesting challenges along the way that's really developed the business. Uh, but we really want to talk about the beginning of the history. You touched on a little bit about 9-11. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, the business that me and the American Chair came right out of 9-11. Originally, I was partners in a business. We made what you call case goods, and that's a trade term for all the um, furniture you see in, like, a restaurant or hotel. If you walk into a restaurant, there's a hostess stand. That hostess stand is usually made by a shop, uh, a shop that would... Um, you know, have table saws, drill presses, things like that, that can do woodworking, maybe some welding. And that's the type of shop I was partners in, as a woodworking shop, had some welding capabilities. So we would bid on case goods for restaurants and hotels. And what, what is a case good? Can you tell, tell us more about a case good? Case good. When you walk into a commercial environment, whether it's restaurant, hotel, library, it's all the wood fixtures that you see that's not the furniture. So you see the chair, but there might be like a desk built into the wall or there might be a long counter that like at a bank, a lot of times they have a counter in the middle that you can write your deposits before you go to the teller window. Then go to the teller window, that's all case goods. So you're talking about like commercial furniture, basically, you know, for like a restaurant or a bank or anything like that. Exactly. It's all the case goods. We call them case goods. It's all the furniture that's like attached to the building. A lot of it, uh, the construction company will screw down. Okay. So then, where were you going at? You said that we started out of out of the case goods. What, so where did you? How do you go from case goods to fire sack towels? Yeah, that's the when you do case goods, and you know any kind of new construction or even remodeling, most of it um, companies bid on, and they'll bid on the roofing. So all your roofing guys will bid on the roofing and then the contractor or the owner or the architect, who's ever in charge of the project, will decide which company they want to use. So they bid on the roofing, they bid on the, the, the plumbing, the electrical, the painting, the grass, the parking lot. So we would bid on different projects. And when we would bid on them, we bid on the case goods and I'd also bid on the furniture as well. And if as an owner bill, a lot of times the owner will do their own purchasing, make their own decisions. Then I would ask, can I bid on the tablecloths and napkins? Because that would make the project a little larger. I tried to, when I bid on project, I tried to bid on it so it'd be as large as possible, something that I could handle. So I bid on the case goods, the furniture, table, chairs. And the tablecloths and maybe the bath towels. So that's how, but then how does that go from into what we're doing now? Yeah. Tell me more about that bidding process. Like, you know, what, you know, is it always like, is it, you know, is it like a hand hand type of combat? Like you're going against other companies or is it you're just putting things out in the dark and hoping that you're going to get a response or, you know, tell me how, how you feel about the bidding process and what it, Tell, tell us more how that works. 
Yeah, that was really tough because I remember a hotel in New York. Uh, it wasn't a day's end. It was a uh, sleeping, no, it wasn't, oh, Mar- or, uh, the hotel, uh, Holiday Inn Express. That's what it was up in, uh, and it was a Holiday Inn Express up north, northern Michigan. And so uh, somebody bought a franchise. When they buy the franchise, then they got to build it, what they call it, according to specs or specifications for um, the franchise they bought. So it was a Holiday Inn Express is what they were bidding on. So I was bidding on all the furniture in this hotel, the case goods. I wasn't bidding on the soft goods on this one, just the furniture. And so I was going up there and I was meeting with the owner. I got familiar with the hotel he wanted to build, the layout and everything about it. And then these companies from down in North Carolina, they were contacting him, but they weren't driving there. They would just talk to him by phone and email. And then they would literally mail him a nightstand or a drawer or a piece of furniture and send it UPS or FedEx. And that was kind of frustrating because I'm standing on the ground, I'm looking at the project, I'm listening to the customer, and I'm competing with people that aren't even here. And in the end, I didn't get the job, but I had a lot of time going into there. So bidding on a project, you're bidding against several people regionally. I remember one time I was bidding on a project for a new uh, place, not a place center, it was a... um, it was a uh, wasn't a place center. It was a like a early development school over in the Metro Detroit area. And I got over there, and there were several shops bidding on it. But I found out there was quite a few shops, like two or three, in like my own neighborhood that had woodworking shops, and they were bidding on this project over in Detroit. So you can go into a project and bid on it, and you could have people basically in your area bidding on it, or you have people from other states bidding on it. It could be quite competitive. So in 2001, you have a case good shop. You're driving around basically Michigan, bidding on projects, trying to put this commercial furniture in restaurants. How many employees did you have at that time? We had a, about 14 employees, and I was the only salesperson. There was three partners in the business. One partner basically um, ran the operation. He's the production manager. He was the boots on the ground. I handled the sales. Then the other partner, he did some sales, and he also worked in the shop. He was a, a former owner of an um, original company we bought. So we, we bought this original, and we formed this little larger company. So was business good? or? Well, the problem with that is we closed the um, agreement to uh, um, formed this new company actually like two days after 9-11. So we never got our chance to get, get off the ground. Um, one of the first larger accounts I was meeting with to kind of help us get started with was somebody that um, I believed he owned some hotels nationally, a few so he is the kind of guy that was always building and buying and selling hotels. And I was meeting with him down in Memphis. And we were supposed to go to a restaurant and kind of get the, I don't know, not really get the project going. There wasn't any project. It was more meeting with him. I met with him before. It was just kind of like, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to start moving forward, kind of getting familiar with his operation. I think he wanted to work with us. 
And so we went to a restaurant in Memphis, and it was like a Monday. I think 9-11 was on a Monday then, and there's like nobody in the restaurant. And they had a TV up on the wall, and um, I believe it was kind of like a sports type thing. And that's when we found out about 9-11, and we were sitting in a restaurant and trying to formulate this plan with a new company, a new customer, move things forward. And at that time, we were sitting there through our meeting, and we started realizing, you know, maybe we ought to pack things up and just head home. So the plan was to have the meeting do some lunch, maybe go back to the hotel, then come back for dinner, talk some more, then maybe get up the next morning and take off. And we wound up taking off that afternoon because we actually drove down there. We brought samples with us. Instead of flying down there, we rented a vehicle. We brought some furniture with us, just kind of get this relationship started. So 2001, you got this cabinet shop that you're just starting out. You're trying to bid on projects, and then 9-11 happens. So tell us more about how the business changes after that event. Well, that drive home, when we went back, we weren't. it was kind of like some parallels now. We didn't know what was happening. We didn't know if they were going to shut down the borders between the states. We didn't know what was going to happen. So our thought was, well, since we drove, and Memphis is about a good 10 to 12-hour drive from Michigan, we ought to get back because if they start closing the borders down, like in getting into Michigan, um, we don't want to be shut out somewhere. So we hustled back. We made it back okay. And then we had a decision to make. And the guy I was with was a salesman for the company I worked with. Um, as another manufacturer of case goods. And the reason he went with me was because we were a friendly agreement between that case goods company and our new case goods company and this customer was pretty large there'd be enough work for both of us um, so there was there was no animosity we could both work together and i was thinking on the way back should i just call this off and not form this company because we didn't sign all our agreements uh to form this new company until I think a Wednesday or Thursday is a couple of days afterwards. And then we signed the agreements to form this new company. I was thinking about just saying heck with it and not forming the new company and just not moving forward. And I don't really remember why I decided to move forward. Um, I kind of felt like at the time that if I'm going to do it, that was the time to do it. I was, I was mid thirties. And I was thinking, I don't really want to get to where I'm 50 or 60 years old forming a company because I knew it was a lot of work to start one. So I thought, well, this is the time. And I just went at it. And in hindsight, it was super difficult, way more difficult than I thought. So then two days later, we did go ahead and form the company. The following Monday, I was sitting in my new job, basically new office, trying to form a company without the phones ringing. There was, is a lot like now, there is really nobody to call. So, you know, where do you go from there? Well, you go from there with nobody to call and you're kind of scratching your head. 
at that time after 9-11, we could go to work. And most people are going to work even though there was no work. And what I decided to do was just started calling people. You know, I had leads. I was familiar with the business. Um, there wasn't really any work to bid on. So what I'd have to do is I would just have to call business owners and just ask them, are you thinking about doing anything? Are you thinking about remodeling your break room? And, you know, is there an office that needs to be redone? I just went to the most bottom level and was just trying to form work out of that. And I did find some work. I remember driving, I called a farm supply place. I think they sold tractors or something. And they were like the south end of our county. I went way out south in our county. I didn't even know there's a farm supply tractor place way out there. And there is. And the guy wanted to do something with his break room. And that was the kind of stuff I was calling on, just anything I could. And over time, over a few months, things started picking up a little bit. And I did start finding a little bigger projects. And then about that following summer, it was pretty tough because 9-11 was in September. So we kind of trudged through the winter. And by May, June, my partners were getting pretty nervous. And they thought that, you know what, we ought to just go into new construction and forget about trying to find work, forget about the restaurants and hotels, and let's just bid on anything we can bid on. Well, there wasn't a lot to bid on, so I didn't see where they were going with it. It looked worse than what we were already in. And like I said, we were all pretty nervous at the time. And this was almost a year later. And they proposed to me, how about you take the restaurant hotel business, any leads, anything you have in that, you just go on your own, do what you got to do. We're going to keep the shop and we're going to bid on new construction and we're going to just try to do what we're going to do and try to save this. Let's just walk away clean. And that's what I agreed to. And so I left that and then I found myself without a job and I got this new company I got to form. And that's where I came up with the idea, American Chair, American Chair, Inc., American Chair Story. So I thought what I do is just go back and start contacting my restaurant owners and hotel people and build a new job. But I had three kids at home and I needed to pay the bills. So I went back to work full time and I formed this company, American Chair. And that's when I started driving over the road truck full time. And I took my first load from Michigan down to North Carolina. I got down to North Carolina. I called up a restaurant owner I knew. I said, hey, this is what I'm doing. Do you have any restaurants you're working on or remodeling? And he says, yeah, I got some ideas, some things I'm thinking of. Oh, can you meet me on Tuesday? Well, I'm in North Carolina, and meeting him on Tuesday wasn't going to work. And then I, that's when I realized that my idea of forming this new company, working full-time, is going to be a challenge. So it's 2001, 2002. You, start, you started this company, 9-11 hit. Nothing, nothing's coming through. So what was the advantage of the company splitting into the different pieces? Well, there really wasn't any advantage. From my perspective, uh, the only advantage was it was fairly difficult that first year to make an income. I, we 
the owners, the three partners to scratch out a paycheck, we were barely, barely doing. I think we lowered all our wages and we were just cutting us a check enough to pay the mortgage and keep the lights on. And, and that was barely getting it through the, so once we decided to break it up and I could go work full time and get a paycheck in, then I could actually have a paycheck to meet the bills I needed. So the advantage was uh, I could breathe a little bit. It's a lot of stress for nearly a year that, you know, every Friday you have just enough to, you know, to, to make, uh, make your payment. In fact, I remember, I think during this time, it was during this time, I drove to Montana to sell furniture to someone doing a restaurant in Montana. So I knew where some furniture was used furniture in Michigan. And you and me, that's when we piled in the, the van was a big box truck and we drove to Montana and that was like what I had to do to make the mortgage payment. So, you, so when you started this case good company, the beginning one with the partners, do you didn't have any startup capital or anything like that? Well, we did. We did have some startup capital and we had a line of credit and that's basically kind of what kept things afloat and what my partner, the the main guy that was the boots on the ground, he did a really good job being frugal and paying the bare essentials. But that startup capital, we strung that out the best we could. And I did land some projects, you know, between 9-11 until that following summer when we severed ways. There were some projects we did, so we had some cash going in. But it, it was hand to mouth every step of the way. So what was your feeling when you noticed that your the company was going to basically you you go from a partnership to being by yourself? What was that feeling like? I felt like a huge failure, right? Because I had to go to my attorney and I had to sign the documents that I agreed to sever ways. So I had to go drive to the attorney and you know they faxed uh, the paperwork to them. So we had, you know, the legal documents to, to separate. And when I signed it, I felt like a huge failure that like I really goofed up. But on the other hand, when I formed the far partnership, I just at that time felt like I wanted to try and just go out on the football field and play the best game that I knew how. And I just wanted a chance to go out on the field and at least run a couple plays. So even though I felt like a failure when it happened and I got to thinking about it that, you know, all I was asking for was to go out and make a couple plays and I got to do that. So I kind of, after I started thinking about that, I put it to rest and, and, kind of was like, yeah, I did. I got to go out and play the game and this new business I'm forming, if this don't take off and, and go in the direction, you know, I was good with that. So you left left the partnership, started American Chair Store, and you're going back to go drive over, over the road. What was that kind of first day like when you had the American Chair? How did you feel like on that first day as your own company? Um, it wasn't so much as a feeling. I just had something in me that is like I needed to do. I talked to I don't know, Faith about it, my wife, and 
And it was kind of like, well, what are we going to do? We, we have this business. I need to work full time. It doesn't really have any value. It, you know, I have a lot of restaurants. I know a lot of hotel owners. I know I have a lot of contacts, but uh, I can't build furniture. I can't. Well, not so much build furniture. I can't build uh, case goods for them, although I, I probably knew some shops that would build it for me. But I had some really good relationships with the furniture companies because when I would bid on the restaurants and hotels, I would bid on the furniture and the case goods. So to put furniture in a hotel, you have to have a solid relationship with the furniture company because if they ship you the wrong type of furniture, the wrong stain, and that was the thing that I was always worried about when I would bid on these projects because you're shipping two, 300 chairs, maybe 100 beds or something, and if it doesn't look like exactly what the owner wants, they'll reject it, and you got a large project that might be rejected. So you really knew, you had to know your furniture. You had a good, have a good relationship with them, which I did. So I thought that what we could do is face said, well, we ought to just work full time and kind of build this up slowly and kind of see where it goes. Because what I could do, that's why I called up that business owner, that restaurant owner and asked if he had some projects because my thought was that I could meet with him, see what he's thinking. And if I can't do the case goods, I could at least put the furniture in his restaurants. And so initially, I wasn't sure what to do when I bought an American chair. It just felt like the right thing to do. And I kind of agreed with Faith that, you know, maybe we could nurse this along and kind of see where it goes. But I imagine you also need capital, too, to get those projects going because, you know, part of the clients you're bidding with, they're expecting like a net 30 and net 60. Where do you get the cash for that? Yeah, that's a good question because in the beginning, when I bought an American chair, I just walked away from the business we had and the, what we severed ties. We just severed ties cleanly. It's just like, you got what you got. I got what I got. There was no money. It was just, it was just a legal agreement. So they couldn't come after me. I couldn't come after them. The taxes were paid, you know, liabilities. So basically they had all the liabilities and they felt like they were taking the, the bigger risk because I didn't have any liabilities when I walked away. So when I formed American Share, there was $20 in the bank, and that's what I started with, was with $20. And far as if I was to bid on a, a project, my plan was that they would provide half down and a solid relationship with a furniture company, and I'd give them half, and then... I'd need half on delivery. So it, it, it was basically a cash-based business. So, you know, the, the American share store at the beginning was much about offline presence. Where do you think, uh, how did you go to more of an online presence? Because in the early days of American share, what you're describing to me is that it was very like shoe leather type of business. You're going in and making calls and kind of that old Glengarry, Glen Ross, ABC type selling, you know, how do you transition a pretty much offline business to online? Because also in that, 
that time with the early 2000s mm-hmm. is not only is web getting better, you know, it's becoming more prevalent. It's getting, starting to get take a foothold in people's, you know, workflows. So how do you do transition something that's largely been offline business to something that's online? And where, where do you see that need to go to the online? Well, I, I think that is where you're right, because originally it was bootstrap. It was meeting people. Uh, it is a really a relationship type business because uh, someone building a restaurant or a hotel, generally they only have one restaurant, maybe two. And so they're really dependent on you to come through that when they want opening day, that they're going to have the equipment in the kitchen. They're going to have the building put up. They're going to have the furniture put in. So they put an awful lot of trust into the different uh, vendors that are supplying the different goods. So they really, they, they got to know you to trust you and, and, and make sure that you can do what you're saying you could do. So uh, there wasn't really a web presence. The web was more of a website. So people could find you, know you know how to get a hold of you. Maybe had a little information on it. And when I started realizing that I couldn't make appointments because I'm working full time, that's paramount. I have to provide a paycheck. I have to put food on the table. I have to provide security to my family. So me meeting for appointments is not really going to happen. And so I took the web store, and, and that was in the early days, you're right, where the uh, the online stores were starting to build some momentum because we had the dot-com crash of 99. And after that, that took out a lot of online stores because at the dot-com crash, that was when a lot of the big guys were really ramping up and the big guys went out. I think there's like Petco or something there. I remember there's quite a few. And then after that, um, it took out a lot of the big guys. And then the online stores kind of were, I don't know, they're fledging or however you want to say it. They weren't that strong after that. And then two years later, you had 9-11. That really took out a bunch. And then that kind of reset the table because then you had the big guys, but also gave an avenue for a lot of the small guys to come back in and start building. And I think Yahoo recognized this. And Yahoo made a platform where it was pretty easy to sign up with them. Uh, They had what they had called an RTML code. It was pretty easy to learn. And you could kind of build your own store. Uh, There's a lot of um, template type web design. And that's what I did because I couldn't meet. And then I started selling some furniture online. And then I was doing break rooms and things like that. I didn't do any, you wouldn't do a whole hotel online and or a restaurant, but you'd be able to do little stuff. And that's kind of where I did in the very beginning. Where do you get the knowledge to produce your own website? That was where Yahoo came in with a template-based website. They were the first ones that really did it. Everybody else that had an online store, it it was a little more complicated because even eBay back then, if you remember when you did the early eBay listings, uh, you had to know some basic code. It it wasn't that easy. And Yahoo, with their template-based website and the RTML, it, it was pretty 
they were the only game in town with that that style of uh, online store. So did you have to learn to code or? Not really. A um, little bit of RTML. I bought their book. Or I remember it was a book they had. I remember there, there was an RTML book a little bit for some of the features, but not really. It, and and I my website wasn't that robust. Uh, I'm working full time and I still, even though I had a web presence, I used it more to steer people towards the store, maybe more steer to where I was talking to them on the phone. That was the advantage being over the road and driving back then. I know it's not safe to drive and talk, but that's what I did at the time is I would be in these long distances like on the wild turnpike and there's nobody around. And I'm on the phone talking to somebody about buying a couple chairs or later some towels. And in between driving or if I was sitting and waiting for my truck to be loaded, I'd be sitting at the dock and I'd be talking to customers. So I was working two jobs at the same time, basically. That's got to be a lot of stress for you. Yeah, it was. And the hours were long. Um, most days were six to midnight. Uh, and because you, you're required over the road to have 10 hours off. Well, nobody can instantly go to sleep. And then I, at the time, didn't require a lot of sleep, so I had my 10 hours off. I tried to sleep at least four to six hours, so you're not driving to work. You don't have that extra time that, like, if you had a stationary job, you're out on the road, you have a sleeper, you have a truck. So I could sleep six hours, have four hours to work on my business. How long did you... Basically, run a website, and then you're also calling people. When do you really notice that you're starting to get traction and that this really became a thing? Because it must have been a hobby for you at the, at the beginning. Am I am I wrong? Well, one thing is, is what I did is I built a Yahoo store, and when I was bidding on the restaurant and hotel before all this transition, I bid on the case goods, I bid on the furniture, and I would bid on the, the towels and tablecloths. Well, when 9-11 happened and I was just trying to find work anywhere I could, a lot of times I would call a restaurant and they would be like, well, they'd have a couple restaurants. Like, I'm not doing anything. I'm just hanging on. I'm trying to conserve my money. But you know what? I would like to put new tablecloths in my restaurant or a hotel. I'd like to put some new sheets on the bed. They'd spend some money to try to um, make their establishment a little nicer. So a lot of times, especially when I was partners with um, that case goods company, I, I would more often than not find these soft goods business. And so when I severed that and I went on my own and I set up the web store and I had some furniture I was selling, I also put on there the, the towels, the bath towels, and I believe the flower sack towels I put on there. I really didn't know what a flower sack towel was at the time, and I was thinking more of a cleaning item. So I put the flower sack on there, the bath towels, and I'm trying to think what else I put on there. Maybe some clean. I didn't put any sheets or anything like that on there. And so when I had that Yahoo store, 
I wouldn't sell that many chairs and chairs and furniture was hard to ship. I did some, but it was really tough to ship. And I was able to sell more towels. And so I started noticing traction in the soft goods. So this is 2002. You're driving truck. You're working American chair store. You're starting with this Yahoo store. Uh, I think this is a good spot. We can just kind of stop stop here. Did you have any any thoughts, you know, about these early days? And we can probably pick this up with part two. Did you have any other thoughts about the beginning of American Chair? No, I just I could see some parallels to now. Um, but as I kind of look back on it, it was pretty tough. But there's, you know, some things that like the Yahoo store and we can talk on the next one, how Google kind of fit in. And there's just some different pieces that just at the time kind of fell into play and eventually evolved to what we have now. OK, thank you for uh, the time. And then we'll pick this up with part two. Hopefully everyone stays safe and stays healthy um, and have a great week. Hello, this is the Future Ryan. I just wanted to add, thank you for supporting us and listening all the way to the end. We've received great feedback from customers and family and friends. And we just want to say one last thank you for your support. And thank you for enjoying the podcast and listening to the end.